Will you please turn with me in your Bibles this morning once again to the 16th chapter of the Gospel according to John where we will be reading together verses 8 through 15. John 16 verses 8 through 15 and you can find that passage on page 1061 in your pew Bibles. I mentioned to you last week that at the beginning of this 16th chapter of John, we find Jesus here expounding just a bit further in a bit more vivid detail for his disciples exactly what awaited them in the days to come. In chapter 15, he began to speak with them at least somewhat vaguely about the hatred of the world, the the hatred that the world naturally held for him and how that same hatred would very soon be leveled against them. What he mentioned in vague terms, he then brought into the light by specific prophecy about the ways in which that very hatred would be made manifest in these disciples' lives. We spoke about it a couple weeks ago. They would be ousted, excommunicated from the community of the synagogue. And that the very people who ran them out from the people of God, who ran them out of the synagogue, out of the supposed community of the people of God, those same people would eventually take even their lives. And they would do it all in the supposed service of Almighty God. Jesus gave to them with the Jesus gives to them with a very specific and harsh truth. And yet it will become a great source of comfort for all of these men in the days to come as they live out the words of truth which were spoken to them by their Lord. He also promised them that they were not going to be left alone. Though Jesus himself must leave them with his physical body to ascend to his proper place of authority at the right hand of the Father, he promises that he will send the Comforter. That is the very Spirit of God who would certainly come and testify of him. In chapter 15, Jesus tells the disciples that the Spirit is indeed going to come in special measure to these men. And to all of those who truly, by the grace of God, are found to be abiding in Jesus Christ. Those who were in union with Him by faith. And once again, we see here Jesus making clear what had remained somewhat hazy, somewhat unknown for these disciples. They know that He's going to send the Helper, the Spirit of God, to them. That he will somehow testify to them and through them about the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the passage that is before us this morning, Jesus goes into more detail about that glorious work of the Spirit of Almighty God. These men will witness the work of that Spirit and they will most definitely be strengthened by it. After Pentecost and the outpouring of the Spirit of God, these men will become very different men than the timid, altogether confused men that in our narrative sit so sorrowfully 
at the feet of their teacher and their master, their king. These men will go on to change the world through the preaching of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And they will do it empowered by the very Spirit of God Himself. And so as we go to the Word of God this morning and we look at this glorious work of the Spirit of God, I want to call to your remembrance why it is that we have been and indeed that we are taking this look at this biblical illustration of life in union with Jesus Christ by faith. The Christian life. Do you remember why we started this series? It's been several weeks now. Beloved, it's because we are living in a day when the Bible itself is no longer the standard of truth, even within so much of what is proudly calling itself the church of Jesus Christ. One thing that has undoubtedly stood out to us is that what the church is so often marketing these days as biblical Christianity is really a far far cry from what we find in the pages of sacred scripture. We look at the life on the vine described here by Jesus Christ and we see a life that is entirely dependent upon God. We see a Christian life that is wrought with difficulty and often pain, even death. And yet somehow, simultaneously, also joy and comfort and rest, fulfillment. We see the glory of God as we go through the process of sanctification in this life, being conformed and molded and made into the image of Jesus Christ, all the while existing for a time in this sinful flesh. And there's a stark contrast that I want us to see between these two views. One is clear, biblical, orthodox Christianity. But what is not biblical, what is so popular today, I fear, is nothing less than another idol fashioned by the vain imaginations and the foolish hands of men. Those who say, away with your God. He's too terrifying. Give us something that gives us the best of both worlds. Health, success, and smooth sailing right now. Having all of our sensual appetites filled to the point of bursting now in the name of God. And oh yeah, of course, heaven later where it only gets better. We've almost become numb to the things going on in popular evangelicalism as they increasingly, in droves, are not only moving away from Jesus Christ as he's been revealed in the pages of Scripture, but from Scripture itself as the very source of truth in the first place. We see another contrast here with the work of the Holy Spirit being explained by none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself to his disciples. And I think that you will find that it is a far cry from what is so often called the work of the Spirit as defined by the world and the church today. It's my hope this morning in looking at this passage to point out three essential effects 
that Jesus makes it very clear that the Spirit of God will bring about. And how all three of those effects are united in one overarching work, which is bringing about the glory of Almighty God through the person and work of Jesus Christ. So I'd like you to look with me at the Word of God this morning and follow along as I read now John chapter 16, verses 8 through 15. Hear now the Word of our Lord. Again, Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he says in verse 8, speaking of the Holy Spirit. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin because they do not believe in me. Of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more. And of judgment. Because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will speak not on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine, and declare it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. This is the word of our Lord. May he always bless the reading of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we again are grateful for your word this morning. We're grateful for the ordinary means of grace that you call us to come and to sit as your people under the preaching of your word. We pray that your spirit would attend to the preaching of your word this morning. I pray that it would fill me, that I would handle your word in a way that is not only accurate, but in a way that edifies your people and glorifies your holy name. I pray for all of us, Father, as we hear your word, that we would be transformed by that word through the power of this spirit that we may live for your glory and your glory alone. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I have a very vivid memory from early on in my Christian life, the early 90s. In 1994, in Toronto, at the... Toronto Vineyard Christian Church, there was an outbreak of sorts or a revival that took place there. As a St. Louis minister had worked that congregation into such an emotional frenzy that the result was a so-called outpouring of the Holy Spirit, which was of course manifested by people passing out rolling on the floor in what was termed holy laughter. There were even reports of some being so moved by the Spirit of God that they fell on all fours and began to bark like dogs. It sounds chaotic, right? It sounds like madness. Well, I remember it because I remember what happened. And it'll probably surprise you. The Church of Jesus Christ began to fly there as fast as they could in order to get a piece of this so-called blessing of the Holy Spirit. 
It was viewed by many American evangelicals as a sign of real renewal in North American Christianity. Similar so-called revivals of the Holy Spirit then began to break out in other places in the United States, especially in Pensacola and Brownsville, Florida in 1995. And they too reported manifestations of the Spirit that included, but were certainly not limited to, speaking in unknown tongues, flapping arms like wings in attempts to fly, even roaring like lions. And again, I remember it because people could not leave their stuffy churches behind fast enough to get there and experience a blessing of the Spirit of God firsthand. These, of course, were not the first types of these revivals, and certainly they won't be the last. They date back to the time of the Apostle Paul. And even in our own country's history, we saw this type of thing happening back at the time of the Second Great Awakening. And I want to tell you, beloved, it wasn't on the, on the fringes of what is called orthodoxy, like so many of these more recent outbreaks. But they took place within the mainline churches, Presbyterian, Baptist, Anglican, and what would become the Methodist church. And so we're left asking ourselves, why? Why does this happen? Is it, is it even legitimate? It's my hope this morning not to get into a thorough study of the manifestations of the Spirit and the history of the church or even to refute it along the normal lines of pointing you to the closing of the canon of sacred scripture and the sufficiency of the revelation that we are all probably holding in our laps this morning. It's not even my hope to point you simply to the the Holy Spirit through the ordinary means of grace and the preaching of God's word. Rather, this morning I would simply like for us to take a look And what the Lord Jesus Christ himself, when explaining what the Holy Spirit was going to do upon his being sent to his people, his disciples, by him, I want to look at what Jesus said with regards to the work and the effects of that Spirit. He mentions three things to these disciples that really should clarify that work for his disciples and beloved for us. Jesus had just explained to these men that he must leave them. He had to be about the work of his father, the very work of redemption, and he would not only have to die, but he would rise again. And subsequently, he would be leaving them and ascending to the right hand of the Father in the glory of heaven. He had been with these men And he had been to these men the very picture of wisdom itself and compassion and comfort. He had been teaching them continually. He had healed their sicknesses and their diseases, their infirmities. He had set them on right paths when they had been on wrong paths. He had graciously opened their understanding to some of the Deep, deep mysteries of God, explaining to them in detail, giving them insight into the deep and rich truth that he had taught them in the parables. Jesus had even modeled humility and servanthood to them. 
condescending even to the point of washing their filthy feet. He had loved these men dearly. And he had made that obvious to them through both word and deed. So you can imagine that the the grief that these men were now experiencing as they realized not only that he was in fact leaving them, but that the days that were ahead of them on the surface were very, very dark days indeed. Jesus recognized their sorrow and then he opened their understanding again into more of the mysteries of the kingdom of of God by explaining to them what the helper, the comforter, the spirit of God himself would do when he came. Jesus said that the helper would come and he would, look at verse 8, convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. I want you to understand that word that we render here in the English as as convict, it's a very strong word in the Greek. The word is elanko, or elanke, which comes from the word elanko. And it means not only to convict, but to actually drag something into the light. It means to not simply accuse, but to end all doubt about innocence or guilt by bringing what may be in the dark into the clear light of day. It is to convict or convince beyond all reasonable doubt. And Jesus says here that this is what the Spirit will do and He will do it with three very specific things. Do you see what they are? Sin, righteousness, and judgment. And who will it be that is convicted or convinced about these three things? The entire world. That is, the Spirit is not only coming to protect and encourage and guide and support these men, these disciples, but He's going to do something that's even more extraordinary. Jesus is bringing the attention of these men to the nature of the importance and the altogether uncommon excellence of the gift of the Holy Spirit of God. Because of the Spirit of God being given to this man, these men will go on to proclaim the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ and the effect of that proclamation is going to be something that they could not even begin in their wildest dreams to comprehend. These timid, scared, uneducated, often very rash men, through the power of the Holy Spirit, are going to be the means by which the going to be the means by which the powerful message of the gospel of Jesus Christ is going to break forth into the world. I want you to think about that for a moment. And beloved, I hope that you, like me, find yourself marveling at the love of God that is displayed through the giving of the Holy Spirit. 
God will, will, by attaching his spirit to the voices of fallen, ordinary men, allow the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ to go forth into the world, both melting and hardening the hearts of men. Doing the work of the gospel. Jesus said the world, and by world I think he means two types of people that make up the entire mass of humanity. There are those who will hear the gospel proclaimed and who will grow harder in their hearts at the hearing of it. And there are those who by the grace of God will have their stony hearts removed and replaced with hearts of flesh. And they will receive this message with rejoicing. They will be transformed through the power of the Spirit by the gospel of Jesus Christ. The very Spirit of God will open blind eyes to the truth of the proclamation coming from the mouths of these disciples and the world will never be the same. We know how it goes, right? We have the the witness of God's word. The Apostle Peter, after the giving of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, stood up And by the power of that spirit, he pointed the people to the precious promises of Jesus Christ, who he said now sat in his place of authority at the right hand of the Father. And Peter said that it is through him alone that one can actually have the the remission of sins, life united with him through faith. And we are told on that day that 3,000 souls, which by the way, was not everyone who was there, but 3,000 of them received his word through the power of the Spirit and looked in hope to Jesus Christ for resurrected life. The first manifestation of the Holy Spirit comes upon these people in a mighty way. And the people were given not unknown languages, but the languages of the nations where they would go and speak the gospel, speak of Jesus Christ and Him crucified to the world. Beloved, you see the difference, right? The Spirit was never promised. And it was certainly never given to draw attention to the people. Or even to the Spirit Himself. The Spirit was given to draw the people to the Lord Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit of God is like a flood lamp that is trained upon Jesus Christ. So that it is Jesus that we see and not simply the Spirit. Jesus came and he said, follow me, come to me. And the Spirit of God comes upon us in mercy and our hearts tell us, go to him, follow him, have life in him. All the debate about the manifestations of the Spirit of God that exist in the church today seem to focus on whether or not God is still doing miraculous things by coming upon men and having them speak in unknown tongues and whatever else. But the very first question we should be asking is what is being illuminated by this? 
Where are the eyes of men being drawn? What are the hearts of men becoming fixated upon? Beloved, if it is not Jesus Christ and his righteousness and the glorious hope of the gospel, then I'm here to tell you it's a distraction, a a smokescreen, and not the Spirit. And we have to see that. The Holy Spirit turns the gaze of the elect to the work of Jesus Christ and its glorious sufficiency to be all that sinners like you and I could ever need. It's what we hold to in our confessions. Heidelberg Catechism, question 53, asks that question. What do you believe concerning the Holy Ghost? First, That he is co-eternal God with the Father and Son. The Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit of the Trinity. Co-eternal with Father and Son. Secondly, that he is given unto me by true faith, makes me a partaker of Christ and his benefits, comforts me, and will abide with me forever. The Belgic Confession of Faith in Article 9 calls the Holy Spirit our sanctifier, And it says that he dwells within our hearts. He abides with us. The Holy Spirit of Almighty God was sent by Jesus Christ to bear testimony of Jesus Christ. He's pointing the people of God to their Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ, and his righteousness. By the power of the Spirit of God. Jesus Christ will not be shut out as he departs this world, but by sending his Holy Spirit upon these men in power, he will in fact be proclaimed clearly to the nations until such a time that he comes again in glory and power and magnificence. Jesus then describes the three effects of the Spirit upon the hearts of men. And the first, of course, is that the Holy Spirit convinces or convicts of sin. Not just a sin, not just a particular disgusting thing that you do in private, but the entire pollution of sin. Jesus says in verse 9, of sin because they do not believe in me. When the Holy Spirit quickens the conscience of man and even allows him to catch just a glimpse of his sin, he is rightly undone. The natural man wants to cling to unbelief. It wants to look away from Jesus, to forget our sin, to find some other way to be reconciled to God. That's exactly why legalism is still very much alive and well in both the church and the world. Jesus is proclaimed, and though there is a desire to try and do the right thing, to be a friend of God, to have God smile upon us, to bless us, the natural flesh seeks some other, any other way. We, like the Pharisees, go about to establish some lesser form of righteousness that is all our own. Thinking somehow that we are commending ourselves to God through our duty, thinking that the perfect righteousness of the law is something that is attainable if we just try hard enough. But Jesus makes it clear here. All sin 
is tied to what? To unbelief. Jesus did not say that the Spirit would point out the wrong things in your life so that you could just quit doing them and find yourself righteous enough to attract the positive attention of God. But in opening our eyes to the heinousness of our sin, the Spirit of God allows for us to see the desperate need that we indeed have for a perfect, spotless, glorious righteousness. One that doesn't exist within you and I. Beloved, if by the grace of God the Holy Spirit has opened your eyes to the offensiveness of your sin before a holy and perfect God, then I trust you recognize this kind of gracious Holy Spirit conviction. I want to ask you this morning, have you ever known This kind of desperation, having glimpsed just a piece, just a part of the depth of your sin. Do you agree with Scripture when it says there truly is no good thing in you? Not only that your very nature is fallen, corrupt in Adam, but that you yourself sin continually. That the most wonderful thing that you could possibly do has the stench and the stain of your sin all over it. Do you believe this morning that you, by nature, are a child of wrath? The natural born enemy of Almighty God. That God would be absolutely just in damning you to hell right now, regardless of how good you think you are. Has the burden of your sin ever become intolerable? Listen, if you can answer negatively these questions then I would not be doing my job if I didn't warn you that it's time for you to consider what it is that you actually are resting in. Ask yourself, are are you resting in a facade? Are you comforted this morning in a masquerade? Are you content, really content, to have a look of Christianity with none of the substance of biblical Christianity. I want to tell you the Spirit of God, if that is you, the Spirit of God is not assisting you with that endeavor. The Spirit of God is not given so that you can put the world and God Himself in awe of your mighty deeds. But according to the King of Kings, according to the Lord Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God will so convict you of sin in a way that demands righteousness that you do not have to give. But by the grace of God, He doesn't leave us there. The second effect of the Holy Spirit will be the convincing of righteousness. Having seen your sin, 
your own desperate need that you have for a righteousness that cannot come from your fallen nature, the Spirit of God will turn the gaze of His church to the only source of the righteousness that you need. And of course, I'm talking about the perfect, spotless righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. You understand, only Jesus came, lived as a man, and yet was found to be blameless in the eyes of the holy law of God. Everyone else has been convicted. Only Jesus was able to walk willingly towards the death of the cross, even though he was innocent of any wrongdoing. Only Jesus Christ was able in the power of his deity to endure the wrath of Almighty God being poured out against sin. Only Jesus could have risen from the dead, defeating sin, death, and the devil for all of eternity. Only the Son of God, Jesus Christ, could ascend to the right hand of the throne in glory to rule as our King and our Advocate forever, for eternity. Only Jesus Christ could send the Holy Spirit to His people with his sole purpose being to turn their eyes entirely upon him. Do you see why he's called the comforter? Jesus must physically leave to complete the work of our redemption. But he sends his spirit to open our eyes to the glory of life in Christ. Christ reigning on his throne. In glory. He shows us our sinful condition, how far we've fallen short. And He mercifully does not leave us there in the just deserts of seared consciences. But He turns our eyes lovingly to the only true hope that you and I have, the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. When the Comforter has come, we see once and for all the vanity and thinking that we could ever please God in our condition. That we could ever somehow keep the law in spite of our fallenness. That we can work and gain the attention of God so that He is forced in some way to show us favor. Some today even claim that this is what the Spirit does. It enables us to now perfectly keep the law. But Jesus Christ, our Lord, the object of our affection, the substance that is grasped only by God-given faith, he says, the Spirit turns our attention away from ourselves, away from everything we're doing, our own filthy rags of self-righteousness, towards the Lord Jesus Christ, the Righteous One, who himself alone never failed to keep the Holy Law of God for us. Jesus said of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Jesus came and he was righteous so that he could stand in our place and receive upon himself the full penalty of the law against all unrighteousness. And he's now at the right hand of the throne of God in power. Having been given all authority over all things, he's filling the world with the sweet, sweet savor of his righteousness. Beloved, he graciously imputes and applies that righteousness to you and to me.
The gospel is going forth from the mouths of men and the Spirit of God is through that gospel convicting men of sin and causing them to hunger and thirst for what is absolutely unnatural to our flesh. The righteousness of Almighty God found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Do you hunger for that righteousness this morning? Or are you still convinced that your righteousness is, you know, good enough? Or at the very least, that it looks good enough? I, I want you to think about what you're saying if you believe that. Do you think that Jesus did it all? That he left the glory of his Father, that he condescended, that he wore this awful flesh? So that you could look good enough? Did Jesus do it all to look good enough? Why on earth would you feel safe in that this morning? Brothers and sisters in Christ, it is is either the righteousness of Jesus Christ being imputed to you, being charged to your account, faith uniting you to his life, his death, his resurrection, and his glorious ascension, or sadly, quite simply stated, biblically, you have no real hope. Jesus did not come and die to promote your gospel of good enough. All other supposed righteousness will be as filthy rags before the judgment seat of Almighty God. That's what the Word of God says. Finally, this morning, Jesus mentions one last effect that the Holy Spirit will have, and that is convincing or convicting the world of judgment. He says, of judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. The comforter, when he comes, having convinced the world of its sin and its need for the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, will then convince even the world of judgment. The soul having by the grace of God through the power of the Holy Spirit laid hold of Jesus Christ and his righteousness by faith will then be able to see that judgment has been rendered by Christ and Satan has been thrown down. You and I in our justified states can absolutely say with confidence that because we have been justified in and through the Lord Jesus Christ, who can condemn us? Satan will come and he will accuse. But judgment has been rendered. That's not hidden. Satan has been soundly defeated and though he may try in vain to thwart the hope that is in me through Jesus Christ, he cannot prevail because come what may, my king is on his throne in glory, reigning in grace. He's at, he is right where he said he would be. Applying, interceding, working for his glorious bride, the church. I trust this morning, beloved, that that fills you with hope to consider. The Spirit points out to the people of God that Jesus is on his throne. And though we may now live in this flesh, in this fallen world, though we may have to endure for a time the pain that is associated with fallenness, Jesus is on his throne. 
The verdict has been rendered by the judge and the justifier. And those who are by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone, trusting in his righteousness alone, through the brilliant guidance of the Holy Spirit of Almighty God, they have been found not guilty by reason of Jesus' righteousness, and we no longer need to live in fear. Do you believe that truth this morning? The Spirit of God comforts his people by fixing our gaze upon Jesus. And when that happens, we truly can leave behind all of our anxieties and all of our fears and all of our doubts and we can fix our gaze on the Lord Jesus Christ. By the grace of God, we can have that inner witness of the Spirit resonating within our hearts saying, I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will ever be able to separate me from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus the Lord. Which inner witness is speaking from the depth of your heart this morning. The one that causes you to run to Jesus? Or do you hear that voice that says, keep trying. You're good enough. You'll eventually get it. Brothers and sisters in Christ, if that inner witness is telling you to fix your your gaze on anything other than the Lord Jesus Christ, It is not the Spirit of God. And you would do very well to cry out to God and ask Him to send His Spirit to open your eyes. Because according to Jesus Christ, that is precisely what the Holy Spirit does for those who have been placed in the vine. Placed in union with Jesus Christ by faith those who are cared for by the Father who will tend and prune them to bring forth the glorious fruit of the kingdom of God for His glory and His glory alone. Amen? Let's pray.